Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Hi, Susan. How are you doing this evening? Oh, totally enjoying my time with the green goddesses. 
Oh, how beautiful. I thought so. Yay. Here we are in Green Goddess Week. And oh my gosh. First of all, the weather is just, I mean, absolutely perfect. Cool mm. at night, warm during the day. It's not like burning us up. Sunny enough that we want to go get in the shade, yeah. But not so horrible that you're just like laying there going, I want to die from the heat. <laughs> so <laughs> hooray for that. I hear even down in Arizona that the worst of the heat wave is over there. But we were a little worried that it was coming this way. So let's see. Last night, which was our first meal together, we had rice and beans. And... I serve rice and beans as a first meal to be in solidarity and in resonance with the huge numbers of women on this planet who will also be eating rice and beans for dinner. Mm. Now, we're wealthy compared to most of the women in the world, not wealthy compared to wealthy people in the United States, but wealthy enough to have avocado with our rice and beans wealthy enough to have goat cheese with our rice and beans, wealthy enough to have tomato sauce with our rice and beans. So today we sat on the lawn and we saw grass and clover. Nice. And of course, rice, like all grains. Rice, like all grains, is the seed of grass. And beans are the seed of a legume. And clover is in the legume family. So we were sitting on what we ate for dinner last night. I love that. And we realized that not only did we eat a archetypal, I'm going to call it an archetypal human meal, because the seeds of every grass in the world are edible. And the idea that our ancestors didn't eat grains is patently absurd. There is certainly evidence of our ancestors having eaten oatmeal, because we found remnants of the oatmeal in a container in a cave dated to 30,000 years ago. And since all grass seeds are edible, I think it's pretty easy to know, without a doubt, that our ancestors from way back were eating those grass seeds. Beans, I said, are another matter. Even with a healthy digestive system, beans can give you a pain in the gut, can't they? Yeah, they can, uh, yeah. <laughs> Create some sound effects and, yeah. <laughs> I had a very dear friend named Karen who kept goats, and she wanted to do the very best by her goats, and so she was told that the best hay was alfalfa hay, and it wasn't until all of her goats were dead that she learned that goats can't digest alfalfa. Mm. Which is also a legume, right? Mm. 
Mm. Now, I know that the ghosts really like the alfalfa pellets that the rabbits eat. The ghosts would go to all kinds of strange shenanigans to get into the rabbit pellets if they can. But I suspect that's because the rabbit pellets are processed alfalfa. Mm. And that it's not like, hey, and if if they get some or if I even give them some, it's like a cat treat, right? Right. It's not it's not like stuffing their feeder with alfalfa. Makes sense. Yeah. This yeah. goat's doing a little jig on the milk stand and I need another ninety seconds. Here, have some rabbit pellets, honey. Stand still mm-hmm. for me. Yes. <laughs> right, we're talking, right. you know, like 25 ra- rabbit pellets, just a bribe. So, and at first I was afraid, but I, they seemed so adamant that they wanted it that I that I went with it. And also yesterday we looked at amaranth and lamb's quarter. Two sister weeds that grow all over the world and are specially found in cultivated places. As a matter of fact, we harvested lamb's quarter and amaranth from my floral pots on the deck. We harvested enough amaranth and lamb's quarter from the pots of flowers I have on the deck. Well, I purposely let it grow for this purpose. But we harvested enough to feed all eight of us. It's amazing, isn't it? Sarah Ellen, are you still there? Are we still there? Oh, I'm sorry. I had my new button on. I was saying, yes, what a generous plant. And that is so amazing that you could all eat from a deck, a plant growing on the deck like that. Wow. Not just one. That's... No, it, you know, I picked them out of every pot. Right, right. I just mean a, uh, but yeah. one kind of plant. Yeah, amaranth. Just one mm-hmm. kind of plant. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So. And we, I was wow. talking about um, the fact that these are exceptional greens in that they are complete proteins. Mm-hmm. Most mm-hmm. greens don't have all of the needed amino acids. You're muted again. Isn't that interesting? No, I'm here this time. I was just taking a sip. <laughs> <laughs> so, didn't you tell a story before about the amaranth seed and that it was at one time, like a long, long time ago, was banned or something? Or well, I promise it's kind of it, it's no? not that it's not that old a story. When the okay. Spanish, the Spanish Catholics came to the New World. They found the people honoring the grain, honoring the grain as woman, honoring corn mother. Mm. They found corn mother as amaranth, as amaranth goddess. They found the people dressing in beautiful colors and 
singing and dancing in celebration of the grain, but what they saw was heathens worshiping idols. Mm. Mm. Right, I remember now. Mm-hmm. And so they banned amaranth. When it first came on the market, it was called the lost grain. Because people took it as they have everywhere where a important food has been somehow made illegal. People find a way around that. And because it's an annual crop, it means it actually has to be grown every year. This is not like a bean, which you could actually like. I used to serve Anasazi beans, but I can't get them anymore. I'm not sure why. And the story of Anasazi beans is a fabulous story. There was a hiker in um, Arizona, and there can be flash floods when you're in the canyons there. It can rain um, upstream. And by the time the water gets to you, it's not just water, but it's carrying huge rocks and trees. And you can, if you're listening, you can actually hear it. It kind of sounds like a, a super busy highway or a train coming your way. And this hiker heard that, yeah. and he had seen the rain clouds, and so he knew that it had rained, you know, further upriver. And mm-hmm. so he started to climb to save his life, and he climbed and climbed up this canyon wall until he actually found a little ledge, and he was going to scrunch onto the ledge, and the the kind of back of the ledge gave way and gave way into a little cave. Oh, wow. It had been sealed up, and in this cave were beans. Mm. And because the people who used to live in the canyon lands in Arizona were called... I don't know if they still are, were called the Anasazi, which means the old ones. These beans were called Anasazi beans. Mm. They were particularly delicious beans. Wow. But, yeah. But um, I can't get hold of them anymore. I'm not sure what happened. Mm. And um, And what a contrast, right? The amaranth, which has to be grown every single year, to the beans, which had been sealed up in that cave probably for a thousand years. Wow. The Anasazi are the old ones. We know that they lived there. We can see what they left behind. We have no idea why they're not there anymore. Hmm. Plants connect us to each other through time and space. When we see a weed growing in our flower pot, and then we discover that it was banned, even though it wasn't the weed that was banned, right? And there are so many amaranths. And many, many people grow amaranths because they are gorgeous. Do you know the flower coxcomb? Which one? Coxcomb? Coxcomb. 
It's a rather no. stiff flower, usually in shades of vibrant orangey yellow, orange, or bright pink. And it looks oh. like a cock comb, the comb of a rooster. It's kind of stiff. And that's an amaranth. Hmm. Interesting. I've never heard yeah. that. And I do collect the seeds of the wild amaranth, the amaranth retroflexus. I usually collect the seeds out of the CSA, which has bigger plants. Since I live in a quarry, I don't really have cultivatable land. So my amaranth, it's hard for my amaranth to get big enough to make a lot of seeds. Sometimes it grows in the barn area, and then we collect seeds from it. And I do that by going around to it and holding a dish by the seed heads and kind of shaking the seed heads over the dish. It's a pretty big dish. But you have to do that day after day for weeks on end because it's a wild plant, and it doesn't ripen all of its seeds at once, right? Right. Getting all of your seeds ripe at once, like an ear of corn, is something that we engineered into the plants because we want to eat all the seeds at once. Thank you. Right? We don't want to have to go out there and harvest the wheat grain by grain. We just want to cut it all down and be done with it. Mm-hmm. So we convince the plants to do this very plant-like thing, which is to ripen all their seeds at one time. And when you start to harvest seeds from wild plants, you see very clearly that they don't do that. Right. Definitely not. The, the amaranth is easier to cook because the stalk is edible, so you just kind of hack it up into pieces and throw it in the pan. The lamb's quarter, on the other hand, the lamb's quarter seed is easier to collect. I just collect the seeding heads and dry them, and I just use the whole thing. I don't even winnow it. The chip is just perfectly edible. But cooking the lamb's quarter is a lot fussy because you can't eat the stalks. I've heard that down there's some species of lamb's quarter with stalks that aren't too fibrous to eat. Yeah, the stalks, like, we have a lot of lamb's quarter here, and the stalks can get really, not when they're little, but when they get big, it's they. they Pretty, pretty dense. <laughs> They're really worth And it's funny because amaranth gets bigger. And you think, oh, yeah, look at that big stalk. You can never eat that. But it turns out to be tender when it's cooked. Mm-hmm. So we were having a great time. And, of course, both of the seeds are complete proteins as well. Whether you buy amaranth or what is cultivated lamb's quarter seed called? Oh, goodness. What is it called? I don't know. Quinoa. You're kidding. No. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. The plant that grows in our gardens is Quinopodium album, usually. If you look down into it, it's really white. It's kind of whitish on the back of the leaves. So it's Quino Mm -hmm. goose, podium foot, the white goose foot, Quinopodium album. Um, and the plant that's cultivated for the grain is quinopodium, quinoa. Oh, wow, wow. I had no idea. And I have a favorite memory. I have a past apprentice who invited me to visit her on her homestead. 
for the express purpose of helping her figure out which was the quinoa that she had sown and which was the lamb's quarter growing as a weed in her garden. And the truth of the matter was, we couldn't figure it out. We thought maybe one of them was whiter than the other, but we weren't really sure. And it was partly because they were still pretty young. And she said the quinoa rapidly overtook the size of the lamb's quarter. However, in experimenting, I once semi-cultivated the lamb's quarter plant. It was growing in a garden area, so it was in pretty rich soil. And I started treating it the way you treat basil. I just cut off the top of it, right? And it sprouted mm-hmm. branches, and then I cut off the ends of those branches, and so those branches sprouted branches, and then I cut off the ends of that. So I turned it into a lamb's quarter bush, and I was able to harvest a quarter pound of seed from that one plant. Wow. They're little tiny seeds, too, so that's... They're fairly tiny. As I I said, these are annual plants. And remember that all an annual wants to do when the seed sprouts is to send down roots, send up a stalk, have flowers, have seeds, and die. That's it. This Mm. is why we pinch back the basil, because we wanted to have more leaves. Thank you very much. We don't want it to grow straight up, have flowers, and die. Right. I've found that about most of my mint plants, that they are really do much better if I prune them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I'm looking at my rosemary and it's going, would you cut some of me off already? Mm. Wow. I have a hard time with basil, so I agree with the oregano, definitely, um, and with the lavender, even appreciates that, it seems. Yeah. We have a really dear sister as our guest tonight, and she is a woman who has had me on her show. And we have worked together, and we feel so simpatico. So I know it's going to be a wonderful conversation when Anna Clint is with us. Anna works with women all over the globe to heal their painful 3D past in order to create lives they really love. She's an expert in the field of psycho-spiritual energetic healing using state-of-the-art energy healing tools, transformational listening, listening, coaching, and spiritual counsel to guide her clients out of confusion, self-doubt, and perfectionism into grace, ease, connection, and purpose. Stick with us until 9 o'clock or come back at 9 o'clock to hear Anna Clint and I talk about what is reclaiming the self and how is this part of the larger human journey of consciousness. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
So what's up at your farm? Oh, well, we are enjoying a little bit of a cool down. Like you said, it got nice and cool after we had a really big rain. Um, and our corn is just about ready to start being harvested. Um, I mentioned last week about working with the tallows and the catnip tallow, I think I mentioned. And um, that was pretty fun this week because I had an occasion the day after, on Wednesday morning, I was opening up the barn and I forgot that there was a wasp nest on the back of one of the doors. And because it was about to storm, like really storm, and um, I was just mindless. And so when I opened the door, I let it like go out and swing and hit the barn wall and I was going out with it and boom I had on like a loose sundress and there were two of them in my dress so I got stung twice like right in the center of my spine like almost where I couldn't reach and then just like on the left shoulder blade so I'm like running inside and the first thing on the counter was the catnip tallow oh my goddess it was amazing uh, it was like I hadn't even been stung by a wasp. It was, dare I say, better than plantain. Um, it was like it, the sting was alleviated immediately, and then there was almost no wealth. I did take a little bit of OSHA just to be sure because I was home alone, and I thought, oh, great, what a great time to be stung by wasps. Um, but it, I was so impressed with the catnip. And then later in the day when they did start hurting a little bit, I put the catnip back on there and – forgot they were there and that it was just amazing and then my my husband went to see his parents that's why I was home totally alone and um he took some with him I sent some with him because his dad had asked for something to help with his he did something golfing to his back or neck and he had asked for something with cannabis in it even though he's never tried that before other than a friend gave him some cream so we sent him with some cream with some cannabis and CBD in there, but I said, here, just take this, and if he's willing to try it, see what he thinks. He said it worked better, the catnip. So this is catnip that you infused in tallow? With a little bit of olive oil, and it didn't smell nearly as bad once it, like, cooled and sat in the jar, and my father-in-law didn't say anything about the scent, so... um, I guess it's not that bad, but it the pain relief it provided was amazing, and especially to the stings of the wasp. And he says to his something he did to his neck and upper back. Um, so pretty cool. I'm gonna All say this, right. So you took fresh catnip. You took fresh mm-hmm. catnip, and you yep. uh, put it in some olive oil mixed with. Uh, how did you get the tallow liquid? Did you heat it? Okay. I gently heated the tallow, like really, really gently. Like we have an electric stove, so I have like a warming center. So I just slowly put it on the warming center and did that. And then I did it just like with olive oil. I poured it over the cut up catnip in the jar. I just acted just like it was coconut oil that I was gently liquefying and put it in the jar. And then I put some olive oil in there, but definitely not half and half, just enough so that it makes it um, a really nice, like, cream texture without having to add anything else, just olive oil and the towel. And then I did 
um, put it in a brown paper bag and let it sit outside in the sun for a couple weeks. And um, then it came inside after that. And then, um, let's see, I put it back on, on the warming center, which wasn't quite enough. So I had to put it on just the slightest low setting on the electric stove. And then that's how I reliquified it and then poured the com- combined tallow olive oil that the catnip had infused in into a jar. <laughs> that's so, always the trickiest part is getting the herb back out again. Yes. Oh, I tried last year to do it, like, without putting it on ultra, ultra low on the electric stove. And it took me so long. It was ridiculous. And I felt like I probably wasted too much of it. So this worked great. And it definitely seems to be effective. And for my father-in-law, who does not ask for plants, like, he, he would have no idea what a tincture is. The fact that he even put a cannabis cream on him was shocking to me, but some, he loves golf and someone in his community recommended it. You know, it's like a 50 and up community. So he, he trusted it enough and asked for it. And then he was willing to try the catnip and voila. Voila. Catnip is one of those kind of unsung plants. You say, oh yeah, catnip menstrual cramps. And that's not wrong. Catnip does so much more. Catnip, like yarrow, is very effective insect repellent. Mm. As tink- and as a matter of fact, I see some enterprising women who are selling a combination of yarrow and catnip as an insect repellent. Tinctures of both uh, mm-hmm. the flowering tops. And catnip tincture is also beloved by parents of hyperactive children because it calms them down. Mm. Wow. So let's hear it for the catnip. I have a feeling we're going to find ourselves at the catnip patch tomorrow. Yay! Atalia <laughs> and I have already like harvested catnip a huge amount, and it's still like so much flowering catnip. Mm-hmm. That's how it is here. I've just been... Because one of our cats insisted that he is not an indoor cat. So he's been outside, inside, outside, inside. And I have just been, you know, pulling off pieces of catnip for him as much as I want. And that catnip just comes back even more and more and more. So, and that's the same one I harvested from. So it's very prolific plant. <laughs> that it is. Well, we certainly have talked for a long time tonight. Are there any questions? We do have a question. Um, My hand is up in the queue, and I will remind everyone else listening, if you would like to ask a question this night, tonight, and speak with Susan, please press 1, and then we will see your hand go up in the queue, and you will be connected live to speak with Susan. Our first hand that is up is dialed in from the 201 area. Are they going to play music for us? Yeah. Hmm, it's like being on hold. All right. And we have one from the 510, from the 201. If you're listening, but just have some hold music or something, just know we'll come back to you next. Um, We're going to jump to the 510 area code first. From the 510, you are live with Susan. Hi. um, Hi. Can you hear me all right? Yes, we can hear you. 
Great. Thanks. Hi, Susan. Um, I have a couple things up in my um, lower region and wanted to ask your opinion about them. Okay. I have um, this started because my midwife who does my pelvic uh, couldn't find my IUD string. And when I went to get an uh, an ultrasound in it to see whether that was in there and what was going on, they also found a 7-millimeter fibroid. And I'm not concerned about that except that this copper IUD is up in there uh, and not retrievable. Like I've, I was in the office, they tried to retrieve it and they could not. And what they're suggesting with this now is a laparoscopic removal of both objects in there. Um, I could also let them go in through my cervix with a needle, you know, like to numb me and just try to take the IUD. Um, it sounds awful <laughs> and uncomfortable, and I want the IUD out. So They I, want the I, IUD out. Well, I do. It has five so, years on oh, it. Oh, you want it out. I thought you said I they do. wanted it out. I want it out because you it want it out. On it. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's in a good position, quote unquote, is what they say. But huh? I don't care. I feel like that might be contributing to the fibroid and it's possibly not, other absolutely things. Absolutely not. How many women have fibroids? Oh, I know millions. Everybody. Everybody. I, I would not even pay any attention to the fact that there's a fibroid there. None. Right. I mean. And certainly not, not remove I'm, it. Right. So not remove so it. So let's they just talk it. about the IUD. Yeah. And it's not contributing to the fibroid at all. Okay. I've heard people say that the copper has all kinds of effects, mental and emotional and physical. And I've had it for five years. I have had all kinds of those kinds of effects, but who knows what they're sourced by, you know. But I just have this intuition. Yeah, that arguing like to... about it, I'm being wanting to hear only that, yes, this is something you want out, and you yes. want it out no matter what has to be done. Right. I mean, it's going to have to come out eventually. Uh, so. It, well, you know, what I understand yeah. is that the physical body is extremely adaptable and that it actually believes every word we say. Yes. Yeah. I believe that too. So I think that your body is perfectly capable of if not eliminating and getting that IUD out, at least making it so that it can be easily retrieved. Uh-huh. So what uh -huh. shape is it? Is it a T? I don't know what. I think it's still in the regular shape. So um, 
in order to help your body move the IUD in such a way that it could either on its own leave your body or be more easily retrievable, you need to know exactly what it looks like. Yes, I agree. I need to go back to the image. And I'm getting another image just to see if the fibroid is growing or if it's just... doesn't matter if it's it's growing. In fact, the fibroids that are growing are not ones that are important. Oh, interesting. Thank you. If you're going back only to see if the fibroid's going, cancel the appointment. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I'd like to see a good image of the shape, like you said, so that I can really start visualizing. Um, If you think that you need to have an image in order to see the shape of the IUD, when I fully suspect that your doctor can tell you what it is and you can draw up that image online without having to put your body through a test. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I do know what it was shaped like when it went in. I mean, it's a, it's a paragard, you know, it's a copper key. Um, it was a copper key when it went in. Yeah. Well, that's what I asked. And the string was, it a, was supposed to be there, you know. The there, there was, was a copper key and there was a string on it. I don't think the T's change shape. I think that's what they are. Yeah. And it's a T because that's pretty much the shape of the uterus. Yeah. So if it were retrievable, it would mean that the little arms of the T are hinged so that when it's pulled, they go up. It can pull out, right? So your body can do that. Squeeze it kind of into a position, yeah. But once you get it down into the cervix and down into the cervical canal, your body can squish it down there. Come on, it does it with a baby. This is nothing. Yeah. But it's not instantaneous. If you imagine two triangles, one with the base up and one with the base down, Yeah. Those triangles represent, one of them, the six steps of healing, and the other one, how long it takes to recover from the intervention. Uh-huh. And, of course, the points opposite, right? Yeah. So it takes a very long time to recover from the intervention of surgery, but it takes a very long time for having your body do it to work. Uh-huh, right. So you get to decide what you want to spend your time on, healing after surgery or getting your body to get rid of this. Okay. They're I both have... reasonable choices. It yeah. Very much depends on your circumstances, your desires. Um, for some people, it depends on what insurance is willing to pay for. Although right, I never think exactly. that's a really good reason yeah. for choosing your health care. Totally, totally. Uh, I have another thing going on mm-hmm. in that reading and, that but I want to I would also about. say that. Um, obviously, what we're talking about is visualizing this. Yes. And visualizing it very, very clearly. I heard a man speak about being in a 
bicycle accident that shattered his spine. Uh-huh. And he was told that the only thing that could be done was to take him into surgery and to fuse a steel rod into his spine to stabilize it where the bones were broken. And he had a very, very deep gut sense that he could heal it. Yeah. And he said what he did was he envisioned every vertebrae of his spine complete and whole. Now, he said the first time he tried to do this, he got about five seconds into it and he got distracted. Yeah. And that it actually took him two years before he was really able to visualize every single bone in his spine whole and healthy. And he runs marathons now. Wow, that's incredible. I love these stories. Why don't more people do this? Because it takes time and it takes effort. But I always figure if you're calling me that you're probably up for the time and effort. Yeah, I appreciate the reminder of how powerful we are. It's one of the reasons that drugs are so popular. Yeah, right. Right. (laughs) They work fast. On the other hand, any time it works fast, it means it's going to take longer to heal from. Yeah, that's a that's a really important piece of the of the conversation for sure. Of the consideration. Okay. Now there was something else you wanted. There is. It's uh lichen sclerosis. Which I've been told is an lichen sclerosis. Yes. And terrible itching. Terrible itching for you. It's very itchy. Horrible. And what have you tried that hasn't worked? Um, I have a product that I found at a health food store, like clearance rack, once years ago, and I still use it. It's from Australia, and it's kind of like it's a cream. It the only thing I recognize in there is very clean ingredients, but tea tree oil, and which is surprising <laughs> that you would put it there. But there's a tea tree oil is a drug. Yeah, I know. I know, but it helps. How could you call it clean? Well, I say it's really clean penicillin. (laughs) It's an essential oil, yes. It's an essential oil, hello. (laughs) I know. That's the last thing I put on anything that itches. Well, it helps, and it's not steroid cream. I I have never said that drugs don't help or work. Right, right. I would never say that drugs don't help. Obviously, drugs help. Obviously, drugs work. Yes. Is that what we're talking about? Well, I haven't. I didn't it didn't work. I said I wouldn't put it on something that itches because I find it offensive. Because essential oils are like nuclear warheads. Okay. Just really, really nasty to the body. First of all. An essential oil, the vast majority of essential oils are made with absolutely no regard for the environment. In fact, the largest largest essential oil maker on the planet has already paid millions upon millions of environmental fines. And they say it's easier and cheaper to pay the fines than it is to be environmentally sound. Wow. 
because it takes huge amounts of plants to make the essential oils. Right, right. Right? So it's a really greedy way to go to use essential oils. Using up the planet at a furious clip. And essential oils are hormonal disruptors. Okay. They're like the equivalent of Roundup. Right? Anytime you smell them, put them on your body, bathe in them, use a shampoo with them, you are disrupting your entire endocrine system. What a trip. I've never heard that. Your thyroid, your pituitary, your pineal, your all, all of your endocrine glands, your adrenals, your ovaries, everything is now under a state of... Holy magolies, why are we being dealt with this way? Yeah. Essential oils melt other oils. If you yeah. spill an essential oil on a finished surface, it takes the finish off it. Yeah. If you spill an essential oil near something made of plastic, it melts the plastic. Mm-hmm. Every cell in our bodies is protected by a double lipid layer. Uh-huh. There's a fat that likes water and a fat that's afraid of water, and they buddy up. And they make a barrier around our cells. Essential oils destroy the barrier around the cells and then go in and start killing the mitochondria. Oh, wow. Now, you probably know mitochondria as the energy source for the cell. But what most people don't know is that mitochondria are the signaling center for the immune system. In fact, it was this nasty little thing that essential oils did that got me onto them in the first place. In a very short period of time, I had three women approach me who were having severe immune system problems. I wondered if there was anything similar about them. Yeah. And what was similar about them was that they were all massage therapists who were up to their elbows in essential oils for hours every day. Right, right. And when I suggested that it might be the essential oils and they stopped using them, their immune problems cleared up. What a trap. That's crazy. So I went looking in the scientific literature, and it's right there in the scientific literature. Wow. It's not something to make it up. Essential oils destroy mitochondria. Mm. Oh. Do you understand why I would put a cream with essential oil on that? Uh huh. Uh huh. It's not just a personal preference. It's my desire to live on a whole planet and leave that for my grandchildren, and it's right. my desire to live in a whole body and not poison it. Wow. And I find it. Absolutely astonishing that people who are paranoid and frightened of all kinds of toxins and chemicals use things like essential oil. Right, right. Well, it's a... Right, and that you could call it clean. It's like, this is a clean nuclear power plant. Yeah, sounds like there's a pretty good uh, spin on it. (laughs) So what would you recommend, or do you have 
what what could you tell me about that condition and how to how to relieve it and maybe even how to stop it? What and, was Sarah Ellen talking about? Did you hear the beginning of the show? I did not. Sarah Ellen was just telling us about a catnip in tallow and olive oil. She harvested the fresh flowering tops of her catnip and made a external application of it. And when okay. she was stung on her spine by a couple of wasps, it took the pain away immediately. Okay. And she took some for her father, who was also experiencing some pain, and it took his pain away, too. So it's possible that that would work, since it seems to be the herb of the night. My mind always links the plain plantain as the ally for those with terrible itches. My favorite my favorite memory is going to a party at my friend Rose's, and her husband was up on the deck grilling or cooking or whatever, and I came up the stairs, and as I came up to this up the stairs, I saw him scratching the back of his knee, and he was doing something on the grill, and then he'd scratch the back of his knee, and he'd do something on the grill, and he'd scratched the back of his knee. So before I got up the steps, I turned around and I went down the steps and out into the lawn and I found some plantain and I chewed it up and I came back up the steps and when I got up to Stuart, I just took the plantain out of my mouth and put it up against the back of his knee and went on in the house to say hello to Rose. And it was less than five minutes when Stuart comes running in the house going, what was that? What did you put on my leg? I can't believe this. The back of my knee has been itching for three years and it's stopped. Wow. Cool. So you have some plantain in your yard? My yard does not, but I can get some. Good. Yeah. And or you can probably find somebody who has some plantain ointment. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that. Yeah. Okay. All right. And any suggestions to like stop the whole condition to like get the whole condition to stop or is that something I'm living with? Is there any advice on that? What can you tell me about, besides the itching, about how this is a problem for you? Um, it is making the skin very thin, if you will, and tender, like crepe-like, crepe paper-like. And I haven't asked you, so I will. Are you drinking nourishing herbal infusions? Oh, yeah. I've been doing that for 14 years. Wonderful. Okay. Mostly nettles and oat straw. Awesome. Sometimes comfrey. Okay. So you're leaving out the herbs that would be best for, for this. preventing okay. this from having okay. ever happened. There's a reason that there's five herbs in that rotation. And you know, what you're leaving out are, is what you're leaving out is red clover, which would have prevented this from happening. 
So red clover is my understanding could be contributing to an overproduction of estrogen, which is potentially not a great thing at my age. I'm almost 50. So how does red clover contribute to an overproduction of estrogen? And which of the 30 estrogens that you create are you talking about? I'm sorry, I don't know, obviously, much um, more than that. I thought I read that this is hearsay. in your So in your you're going to tell me a hearsay, even though I, with 50 years of experience, are telling you something different. I'm trying to listen, and I thought I read it in your papers, and that's why I mentioned it. So No, you have never read Please. anything like that in any of my books. Okay. I thought red I read that clover does fibro- not contain estrogen. I thought I read that the red clover was not recommended with fibroids. I thought you it will read that, that everywhere. That doesn't make it true. Okay, not in yours. I thought I read that in yours. You're never going to hear that from me. Okay. Because I work with the plants. I don't work with hearsay. So let's start here. Your body makes 30 different kinds of estrogen. Your body starts making 29 of those kinds of estrogen when you are about five months in utero. In other words, four months before you're born, your body starts making 29 kinds of estrogen. Okay. Every woman's body continues to make those 29 kinds of estrogen, which prevent lichen sclerosis every day of her life. Okay. At puberty, we start making the 30th estrogen, estradiol, or estradiol, and at menopause, we stop making it. Isn't that interesting? This is a hormone, one kind of estrogen, which is only made for a couple of decades out of a woman's life. What is going on with this? Well, it turns out that estradiol, it really is a cancer-causing hormone. Huh. The cancer really likes estradiol. As a matter of fact, in order to ovulate, we have to produce estradiol, but it's such a dangerous hormone that we actually only make it for 24 hours. Oh, wow. And every ovulation you have, that's only 24 hours of estradiol, kicks up your risk of breast cancer. Huh. So if a woman is pregnant, that's 10 months where she's not making estradiol. That is a specific statistically significant drop in breast cancer risk. If she breastfeeds the child for three months, only three months, that's just three less days of estradiol, that confers an even greater reduction in her risk of breast cancer. Oh, right on. Estradiol is a real winner-dinner. But red clover doesn't contain it. In fact, red clover doesn't contain any estrogen at all. What okay. red clover contains is phytosterols. Phytosterols can be turned into any hormone at all in your body. Now, if you're going to not drink red clover because you want to avoid phytosterols, 
then you are not allowed to eat any nut, any bean, any grain, or any root, all of which have as much phytosterols as red clover does. Okay. Are you not eating carrots? Am I what? Not eating carrots. Are you eschewing carrots? Are you afraid of carrots because you're 50 years old and shouldn't overdo it on estrogen? No. No, I'm not. Well, then red clover is as safe as carrots. Phytosterols are widely present in every seed and every root and in some flowers as well. Phytosterols can be found in flower pollens. They are one of the most common of the plant attributes, and they are perhaps one that is the most misunderstood. Okay. But in fact, your body has got to make these phytosterols into hormones, and it does that with the aid of your gut flora. And I was talking today about a very interesting experiment in which 100 women were given a half cup serving of beans. And their urine was measured for metabolic byproducts indicating that they had taken the phytosterols from those beans and turned them into active hormones. The more of that they did, the more metabolic byproduct is in their urine. And those women were divided into four groups of 25 each, from the lowest 25 excretors to the highest 25 excretors, and then followed for 10 years. And the difference in breast cancer risk was that the lowest excretors, they all ate the same half cup of beans, but the lowest excretors had 400 times more breast cancer. Huh. So it's easy to get misled about phytosterols. Okay. There's a huge amount of misinformation out about it. But I certainly would not suggest for everyone of every age drinking red clover if I in any way thought that there was any time in your life you shouldn't do that. Okay. So drink red clover always as part of the rotation. Always part of your rotation. It's the one you need the most. And linden is the anti-inflammatory, which will stop the itching. Oh, I do need that. And helps from the skin. Yeah. Are you re-brewing the cup free? Um, I am. I do. Okay, good. So you have that extra mucilage. I do that with all of them, actually. I'm just kind of a cheap scale. Don't do that. Don't do that. That is such a... Uh, I don't think you understand what you're doing when you're rebrewing comfrey then. Okay, tell me. Are you using cold water to rebrew the comfrey? I'm using hot water again, yes. No, cold water. So doing a cold infusion on the second. What you are doing is you're going to put one ounce of dried comfrey into a quart jar. This is how you start, yes? You weigh out your herb? Yeah. So you weigh that one ounce of comfrey into your jar, into your quart jar. You fill it to the top with boiling water, and you let it sit at least four hours or overnight, and then you strain the liquid out. Now you're going to put the comfrey leaf into a pan, and you're going to put 
two cups of cold water into the jar and use that to rinse the last of the comfrey leaf out and put it into the pan. Right, okay. Because what you want in the rebrew is mucilage. There is no mucilage in nettle. There is only the reduction in your health if you rebrew nettle. Why is that? I thought I would be getting more. Because you're not getting anything from the second brew. I thought I would be getting more of the plant material. How can you get more? You got it all. Well, you know, there isn't more to got. Chlorophyll is useless to the human body. Okay, that's the first. How could you possibly use chlorophyll? You haven't noticed that if you eat greens, that your feces are green? No, I haven't noticed that. Or that if you eat beets, your pee is red? Human bodies don't use the coloring matter from plants. Hmm. And chlorophyll especially is quite unusable because it's a very close match to hemoglobin. And... The one atom's difference between chlorophyll and hemoglobin is really the difference between being a healthy human being and not being a healthy human being. So we have a lot of really strict protocols about how to get rid of chlorophyll. Oh, interesting. In our bodies. Because our bodies see chlorophyll as, you know, it's indicator. The coloring matter in plants is indicators of things. The coloring matter itself is not usable. Okay. So, no, rebrewing nettle means that you're spending a day without nourishment. Okay. That's what I mean, that it's injuring your health. Uh-huh. Got it. Right? So, so we rebrew the comfrey because there's a mucilage in it that is only dissolvable in cold water, and that mucilage helps to prevent things like lichen sclerosis. Uh, is the comfrey the only one to redo like that? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, and then re, and then you said, and then and so you have you. Have, half jar, two cups of cold water, and you can then bring that up to a boil, turn off the fire immediately as it comes to a boil, and let it steep for four hours. And when you strain it, it will be thick and viscous. Okay. It will be slimy. Yeah. Yeah. Other slimy herbs, of course, marshmallow root, and you might want to make yourself a quart of marshmallow root as an infusion, and then when you've drunk that, just fill the jar up all the way to the top with cold water and let it sit in the refrigerator for a couple of days and start uh-huh. drinking that. And drinking that, and that again will be very mucilaginous. And see if that is pleasing to you and your body. Is the first brew of the marshmallow also cold? I, that was my understanding. I make a regular infusion from the marshmallow the first time around to get the minerals from the root. Okay, and then you do a cold on top of that. And then, after I've drunk all of that, I do cold. And I do cold for as many times as it stays slippery, two, three, four, depending on the marshmallow root. 
Okay. And the coffee. Well, fill the jar with cold water and drink that. Fill the jar again with cold water and drink all that. Fill the jar again. Right. Yeah. Is the comfrey only once with the cold water? Yes, only once. That's it. Yes. Okay. There's not more to get from the herbs. You've gotten it all by using an ounce of herb and a quart of boiling water and letting it steep for four or more hours. Uh-huh. And let it steep usually overnight. Is that so That's long? absolutely fine. That's what I do, too. Yeah. I find it easiest. Yeah, me too, just for my life. Yeah. Okay, so and you could even try doing a sitz bath in either the comfrey or the marshmallow or both. Story yeah, that, that nice. Dr. John Christopher used to tell about a man who was brought to him in a wheelchair after one of his talks and said, I'm going to amputate both of my legs up to the knee tomorrow because of gangrene. And Dr. Christopher says, go get in a bathtub and have people throw marshmallow root and comfrey root in that bathtub with you and keep the water really hot. And 10 years later, a man walked up to Dr. Christopher and said, I'm that man in the wheelchair who was going to have his legs amputated. Right on. The comfrey and the marshmallow healed me. Wow. Good to have friends who'll throw comfrey root and marshmallow root in on you. Yeah, right? All right. Cool. Okay. All right. Thanks for your questions. I appreciate your time. All right. And let's see. It looks like our caller from the 201 has hung up, but we have four callers that have pressed one to let us know they've got a question. So we'll hop on over to the 706. And the 706, you are live with Susan. Hey, Susan. Hi. Hi. Happy Lamas. Happy Lamas. We're going to be (laughs) celebrating tonight with Shoshana Budapest. Ooh, that sounds fun. Ooh. Yeah. We always, have green, we always have Green Goddess Week on Lamas so that we celebrate the grain, celebrate the feast of the grain harvest, celebrate loaf moss. That's where Lamas comes from. It's loaf moss. It's what? Loaf. L-O-A-F. Loaf of bread. Loaf mass. It's the, the ceremony of the harvesting of the grain. That's what Lamas is. I love that. Yeah. Some people call it the first fruits. Yes. It's the first harvest celebration, isn't it? Yes, the first harvest celebration, exactly. The grain is generally being harvested. Yes. Yeah. I have a funny story. Uh, Last night I was laying in the bed, and I heard this loud bang. It scared me. Well, we checked outside, and uh, I have a big oak tree, two oak trees near my house, and one of the branches from the oak tree fell, and I thought, it's like, you know, in this time they say it's ruled by the oak king. I thought, well, the oak king saying, you better have a fire tonight, because <laughs> my season's almost over. I don't know, I just thought it was neat. <laughs> but, that uh, is very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, you scared me a little bit, but I'm glad it didn't hit my roof. But um, I did have a Yeah, question. I was a little scared there, too. Right, I know. I do love these oak trees, though. I, I love that they're near my home and keep it nice and cool in this hot heat. I'm in southwest Georgia, near um, northern Florida, 
But I have this uh, tincture that I found. It has echinacea and golden seal in it, along with a bunch of other herbs. But it's made with um, pure grain alcohol and spring water. And I I know you say to make tinctures with 100 proof vodka. I wanted to ask if you could refresh my memory on why you may not um, recommend using this tincture. Oh. I think I remember you telling me. I don't know if I had that long, but I'll do my best. <laughs> when I started making tinctures, I lived in a state in which it was illegal to buy or sell grain alcohol. And I mm-hmm. asked why that was, and they said because it was lethal. And that mm-hmm. if you were to drink a liter of grain alcohol a day for three or four days, you could actually kill yourself. Yeah. When I went away to college, uh, I was shocked to discover that social life revolved around alcohol. And alcohol Mm -hmm. does not agree with me. If I drink even a quarter of a glass of wine, I feel like I've been run over by a car at that time. And then the next day, like I've been run over by a train. It's just no fun at all. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at, you know, no social life at all. Uh, and then an older woman said to me, Bloody Mary. Hmm. Right? You get a glass yeah. of tomato juice with some vodka in it. And you have a yeah. drink that lasts all night long. And the vodka, my body could tolerate the vodka. Not, you know, lots and lots of vodka, but, you know, one drink of vodka a night without feeling like it had been in an accident. Right. And so when I was told I couldn't use green alcohol, I thought maybe I'll use vodka. Now what's mostly available is 80 proof vodka. 80 proof is half, I'm sorry, a number that is double the amount of alcohol. So the amount of alcohol is half that number. So that means it's 40% alcohol and 60% water. Okay, yeah. So... That doesn't make for very good osmosis. When you're making a tincture, you're working through osmosis. You're not actually breaking the cell wall of the plant. The constituents are actually passing through the cell wall because a permeable membrane wants to have the same solution on both sides. A permeable membrane does not like to have more of something on one side of it than the other. And it will do its best to equalize. But plants are about 75% water. So if you put them in something that's 60% water, you're not going to get very much osmosis. But if you put it in 100 proof vodka, which is 50% alcohol, you're going to get good osmosis. Now, if you want really good, really fast osmosis, you take the plant, you dry it, you powder it, you put it into a funnel with filter paper, and you pour pure grain alcohol over it, and it draws out the poisonous part of that plant almost immediately into your tincture. I'm not particularly interested in poisoning myself. Right. Either with grain alcohol or with plant constituents. Mm-hmm. My peers made fun of me 
So you'd think 100% vodka, until it was discovered that half of the active alkaloids in Echinacea are only water-soluble. And 100-proof vodka picks them all up. No wonder I was having such better results with Echinacea. (laughs) And over the decades that I have been teaching and that people have been getting back to me, what I find is that Almost anyone can make a very effective tincture with fresh plant material and hunter-proof vodka. Yeah. It's just as simple as harvest the plant, chop it up, put it in a jar, and pour your hunter-proof vodka over it. If you're using grain alcohol, I actually met someone who's making tinctures commercially, and he would harvest the plant and then dry it, even though he had the fresh plant, before he tinctured it, because he wanted to have the right ratio of spring water to grain alcohol, and he didn't want any of the liquid in the plant. Mm. He wanted more like the drugs. And a lot of commercial tinctures. Yeah. But they are using, by choice and by design, dried plant material because it's more controllable. I'm a woman. I don't need to control things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'm an herbalist because I don't want to control things. I'm an herbalist because drugs are the same every single time, and herbs are different every single time. And insofar as I can tell you from living in a body for 77 years, my body's different, moment to moment, day to day. Yeah. So I figure I have a better chance of dancing with a plant than I do of dancing with a drug. Because the drug is just going to keep doing the two-step no matter what I do. Yeah. I want to break into a tangle or a wall so the drug can't go there with me. Okay. <laughs> but the herb will. And especially mm-hmm. if I've made a tincture with 100 proof on it. Now, I will tell you that during the time when I was taking a lot of tinctures to deal with my diagnosis of endometrial cancer, and during the solid year after my surgery when I was taking a lot of reparative tinctures, that I was very glad that they were in vodka and not grain alcohol because, again, I could have poisoned myself by taking that much herbal tincture. Yeah. And it yeah. certainly would not, have, would not have been as reparative. If I'm taking dandelion root to repair my liver and it's in grain alcohol, which is damaging my liver, what am I doing? Right. Right. Yeah, this intuitively feels better. Like when I make the tinctures with the 100 proof vodka and just the simple one herb picked fresh, it just, it feels easier and more comforting, I guess. Yeah. But when I read this uh, tincture with all the ingredients, it's just, it it feels daunting, you know. They want it to be. They want you to be daunted, my dear. Yeah. Right. right. 
<laughs> they want this, this is you know one of the reasons that I made it my goal to return herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine because the first herbal that I got those first four in New York City weren't really herbals, but the first actual herbal that I got was by Jean Rose, and I opened it up, and there was a formula for something with thirty herbs in it, and I shut the book and I said, "I'll never be an herbalist." Yeah, goodness. Right, this is too complicated yep. for me. Right, right. Yep. And then I, you know, I realized it didn't have to be that way. And partly mm-hmm. because they studied homeopathy, and homeopaths are simpler. Hanuman was a great simpler. Hanuman said, "You never, you can all come in. You can, you never take more than one homeopathic remedy at a time." Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So simple. Well, that's an interesting way. Well, how did herbalists lose this? And it turns out there actually was a whole herbal movement of simplers. Oh. So I've also restored this the simpler tradition um, yeah. of, you know, making your remedy with one plant. And that doesn't mean I don't have a whole lineup of tinctures that I take in the morning. I do, but each one is in a separate bottle. And I take a different amount of each one every day. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? I say, oh, lion's mane. I only need to drop a lion's mane today. Oh, I need more lion's mane today. Oh, motherwort. Oh, I better take a whole dropper full of motherwort. Things are really stressful. Oh, I only need a couple of drops. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, you know, all the things that I have lined up for myself to take. But I'm not taking the same amount of them. And Having them individually allows me to do that. Once they're mixed together in a formula, I no longer have that flexibility. Right. Right. Where does Golden Seal Seal grow? Near to people or far away? Very close to people. Golden golden rod, perhaps, is what you're thinking of. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. But Golden Seal? Seal is a plant of the deep forest, and it grows as far away from people as it can. Oh, yeah, see, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I found this tincture just like in a box I was in going fact, through things. golden seal has been so over-harvested mm-hmm. that it is now threatened and perhaps endangered. Oh, no. Whereas Echinacea loves people, grows around people, <laughs> playgrounds, parking lots, things like that. So... Echinacea, yes. Golden seal, no. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I know let me, I see, if I, let me see if I can get another person's question answered, okay? Yes, ma'am. Thank All you right. So much. It's good talking to you always. Green blessings. Bye bye. All right. And we'll move right on to the 908. You're dialed in from the 908, and you are live with Susan. <clears throat> Hi, Sarah Ellen, and hi, Ben, it's Paul from New Jersey. Hey, I'm so glad you called. Me too. Um, so when you were talking about the herbal infusion, the linden is another formula. You only put it in, um, uh, how much ounce did you put in the first jar? Basically, all of the nourishing herbal infusions are made exactly the same way. One ounce of herb is weighed into a quart jar. Linden, because it's 
big and bulky. I usually only mm-hmm. use half. So I make an exception right. for Linden and use half an ounce. But if you use an ounce, no harm is done. Yeah, right. What we and were then, talking about was making a rebrew of comfrey in order to get the mucilage from it by using cold water. Yeah. And, and then, then we were also talking about marshmallow root and using cold water after we had made that. And all of those are what Juliet Berkeley Levy calls the standard brew, which is one ounce of dried herb in a quart of boiling water. Okay. And the linden, you again, cold I do rebrew linden to get the mucilage from it. Right, right. And I and I told her only comfrey because she was confused, and I wanted to make it very simple for her. Uh, simple. Mm-hmm. I understand. Um, well, hallelujah! I found some fun. No, some. Found a wonderful patch by the patches because I've been looking at them for it up in. What, what did you find a patch of? Uh hmm. Mullen, M-U-L-L-E-N. Mullen, yeah, wonderful. By the crack in Owego, New York. All right. All right. And so, harvest. And I know what you said. You up, put it upside down without taking, stripping the leaves off. But what I wanted to know is, uh, do, what do you do with the flowers? Do you just put them into the the mixture and powder it after it's dried? After it's dried, I use garden shears and cut it up into pieces about an inch and a half to three inches long and then use that for infusion. Perfect. And the stock you just compost? I cut the entire thing up, stock and all. Flower, flower head, seeds, stalk, leaves, all of it. Oh, yeah, why not? That's why I harvested it with stalk and not just the leaves, because the stalk actually contains different constituents than the leaves, which work synergistically together with leaves. Okay, perfect. Right, and remember uh, always with a plant that everything that's in the leaf got there through the stalk. Okay. I think that one of the things that ha- has happened is that I know, certainly know for myself that I kind of came into using herbs through culinary herbs. And if you have a culinary herb, you don't want any pieces of stalk in your basil or your rosemary, excuse me. Right. And so we kind of get this anti-stalk attitude. But as an herbalist, we right. need to repair that and to love our stalks. Okay. Okay? Yeah. All right, Carol. Okay. Hugs and kisses. Love Bye-bye. You. Green blessings. Love you. Love you. Love you. All right. And moving on to the 608 area code. You dialed in from the 608 and you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. This is Christine Vaughn. How are you? I'm so enjoying my life. How about you? I'm working, oh, how can I say it? About uh, seven weeks ago, I had a gallbladder episode. Lots of pain, couldn't find a comfortable position. Oh, that's you know. so miserable, isn't it? Ugh. Oh, it just sucked big time. But it receded, and I did research and 
changed my diet, lots less meat because I'm diabetic and had been eating a lot of meat to help control the blood sugar. I'm also trying to have more meals each day instead of one meal, kind of like, you know, trying to keep the blood sugar, small meals. That's a a challenge for me because I never feel quite full. And I was just wondering if you had any suggestions, whatever you might, you know, whatever info you want to toss at me, I'm taking notes. Um, the gallbladder lies within the liver. And often when there are gallbladder attacks, um, herbalists say, take care of your liver. What have you been doing to take care of your liver? Good question. Um, I've been eating dandelion leaves. I have a. We've been in a pretty bad drought. I'm in Wisconsin, and uh, you're eating dandelion leaves. How are you eating them? Raw. I just like chew them up. I pick them off the plant. Uh, How much of your diet is raw? Uh, probably too much. I probably need to steam my vegetables. The ideal amount of your diet to be raw is zero. (gasps) Yeah, that's true. Zero, and especially not dandelion leaves. That's doing nothing for your liver. Oh, I should cook them? Only if you want to do something for your liver. Well, I do. I do. Well, Well, thank you for that. Eating them raw is probably you'd get more effect if you put it in your pillow than eating it raw. Oh, thank you. Thank you for letting me know that. I mean, rabbits eat dandelion leaves raw, but they get no nutrition from them. The way rabbits get nutrition is, excuse me for mentioning it, they eat their shit. Right, right. So they eat dandelion leaves, they shit out the dandelion leaf that has gone through their digestive system, and then they eat that, and that's how they get nutrition. Even a rabbit cannot get anything from a raw dandelion leaf, is just what I'm saying. And a rabbit's designed to eat dandelion leaves, and you're not. Understood. All right. I start steaming them. So for your liver, what I did to repair my liver after being in surgery and in the hospital, and they pumped me full of really nasty drugs. Oh, no, you know. So I thought, you know, why don't you just be kind to your liver here, Susan? Well, of course, as life will have it. Uh, The autumn before, I was in surgery in May 2020, in the autumn of 2019, I asked uh, the CSA that I'm a member of, I said, hey, can I come out and dig some dandelion root? And they said, please come out and dig some dandelion root. And I got enough dandelion root to make two quarts of dandelion root tincture. And so here I am, you know, fresh out of the hospital, out of surgery, and wanting to do something for my liver. And I said, well, how wonderful. I happen to have two quarts of dandelion root tincture on hand. And so I took a dropper full of that at least once a day to repair and revitalize my liver. The wonderful thing about the liver is it is so infinitely repairable because it's replaced every 30 days. You get brand new liver every month. And if you have even as little as a teaspoon of active, healthy liver tissue and you stop doing whatever you've been doing to make your liver unhappy, your entire liver will regrow. Awesome. 
It's what about so, milk thistle? Uh, milk thistle's lovely. You have access to milk thistle? Yes, I actually have a tincture I made. There you go. All right. And, and I, have, I was just... I was just mentioning with the previous caller that when I'm doing liver reparative or liver nourishing work, I'm always really careful not to use any tincture in grain alcohol. Right. Right. Now, grain alcohol, what about cane alcohol? Because um, there's a brewery it, not too far from where I live. Grain is not the important part. And really, grain alcohol really has nothing much to do with grain. Grain alcohol is a euphemism or another way to talk about high proof alcohol. It's 198 proof. doesn't matter what it's made from. All right. What happens when I cut it? Because I have a science background and I'll cut it down with a ratio to 100 proof. The process needed to bring it up to that high proof has made chemical changes in it that are still there when you cut it with water. Okay. So back to 100 proof vodka, not cane alcohol cut to 100 proof. Correct. Thank you. There's lots of liver-loving herbs. Yellow dock is a liver-loving herb. Chicory is a liver-loving herb. Dandelion, milk thistle seed, they all love the liver. You know, I I say, well, you know, chicory's got blue flowers and it closes up in the sun. So it's probably better for people who are fiery. And dandelion is like right out there shining and ah, getting the sun. So it's probably better for people who are a little too cool. Understood. Whereas milk thistle, milk thistle has this like enormous leaf. You 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 saw the milk thistle plant? I have seen pictures of it. It doesn't grow the in leaf, Wisconsin. The leaves can get three, four, five feet from base to tip. They're enormous, and with these incredible thorns, and you think, whoa, mm-hmm. you know, right? And I think, oh, was your pain sharp and piercing? It was worse than that. It just took over my whole abdomen. It was just like, uh, uh, and, right. and underneath and my right milk, shoulder blade, too. So because of its thorns, is associated with sharp and piercing pains. Ah, good to know. Right? So we think, oh, okay, if it makes sharp, piercing pains, then it could remedy them as well. Awesome. So I think you've really, really hit on something here. The other way to use milk thistle besides the tincture is to take the seeds themselves and grind them up and add them to your food. Oh, thank you for telling me that. You're welcome. And sometimes people do that when they're <clears throat> concerned. The other herb that is used frequently in China to help the liver is Shisandra. And I freely admit to being absolutely besotted with Shisandra. I love Shisandra. And how wonderful that it is. Um, not one of my local liver-loving herbs, but another one. And my Shisandra wine is so abundant and so giving to me. That's good to know about Shisandra. You know, I, I think maybe I'll investigate ordering some. Thank you. And now I have to say goodbye to you and hello to Anna. All right. That sounds great. Thanks, Susan. Green blessings. Green blessings. 
All right. And Anna is here with us. Anna Clint works with women all over the globe to heal their painful 3D past in order to create lives that they really love. An expert in the field of psycho-spiritual energetic healing, she uses state-of-the-art energy healing tools and transformational listening, as well as coaching and spiritual counsel to guide her clients out of confusion, self-doubt, and perfectionism and into a life of grace, ease, connection, and purpose. Anna currently lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. When she's not writing about self-acceptance, self-compassion, and belonging, you'll find her walking her one-eyed healer, Looney Tunes, amongst the juniper trees. Welcome to the show, Anna. It's so good to be speaking with you again. Hi, Susan. It's great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with all of the green goddesses. Yes, you are. (laughs) Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I've been telling them how marvelous you are. Oh, it, it is such an honor to be here and so fun and every time I hear you speak I learn something new and I also get so jealous I love where I live but it is so dry and you don't grow as many things here as you do in other places so I'm always like oh oh could that grow here no I don't think so (laughs) (laughs) but it's just one you do have the kind of yellow dock that grows in the desert Although it does go in the kind of damper parts of the desert, like under the yeah, exactly. over. <laughs> Which I will say is nowhere near any of us right now because we're in this hot, dry thing. But uh, I'll look for it. So hot there. <laughs> I was I was almost tempted to say when she's not melting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. For no melting this year. Sure. So what, do you have any um, special thing you want to share about staying cool in hot times? <laughs> yeah, um, wet a bandana and put it around your neck. Don't show a whole lot of skin because the sun just heats you up. Wear a hat to uh, keep the sun off of your face and your neck and your ears. And uh, you get up early and you walk the dog late. That's what you do. <laughs> I tell you, that's what we do in Tucson. When I visit my friend in Tucson, we are up early. We are out walking. Yeah. And then we are inside watching yeah. the sun go across the sky until it's safe to go back out again. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yes, there are certain times of year where you just have to hide. <laughs> yes, in the coolest, in the coolest. So exactly. you are doing self-reclamation. What is that? It's a great question that I'm dancing with. Self-reclamation. There's multiple ways that I'm thinking about it in terms of and and feeling into it and embodying it as a practice. Um, And, you know, my work is this triad of the psycho, the spiritual, and the energetic healing, ways of healing. And and so from the psychological way of thinking about self-reclamation, I really feel like all of us, you know, we're inculcated or um, infused with, to use one of your words, we were infused with beliefs and 
coping mechanisms and patterns based on family culture, based on society and, uh, and religion and all of these other things. And in a way, uh, reclaiming yourself from those teachings, whether they were well-intended or not, is one way of thinking about that and, and who am I really outside of those norms and um, mores? That's from the psychological perspective. And then, um, and then there's also, that also weaves into things around codependency. You and I talked about that last time that I was on your show around, you know, healing from codependency and those tendencies can be so deeply wired within us as to, render them nearly invisible at times. And so reclaiming yourself from the overdoing, overgiving, people-pleasing, even if it's just at a very, very, very low level, being able to start to see it and, and realize that those are behaviors that are not perhaps your, you know, your true, your true beingness. And then there's, you know, the, the, and so that's kind of affecting us at the level of human, the level of humanity, the level of culture. We can reclaim ourselves from ways of being and doing that are not serving either the individual, but we can even say that these ways don't serve humanity, don't serve the earth. You can kind of, you know, expand out from there. And then there's this other flip side to it, which is how do we reclaim ourselves at a soul level, at a spiritual level? Uh, you know, we come into this body and we forget the truth of who we are, where we came from, assuming that you, you know, believe this. And, of course, not everyone here probably does, and that's okay, too. But this evolutionary process of becoming, or rather, we sh- maybe a better word is to say remembering who we are, elemental, fundamental level that has nothing to do with where we were born, who we were raised by, what we experienced in this lifetime that has goes so far beyond that. And how these two dance together, the psychological and the spiritual, and, and how we as mere mortals play with this, I'm just fascinated by these questions. And by the journey that a that a human being will undertake in in I don't want to say the hopes that's not the right word but in the endeavoring to reconcile this kind of paradox that we are these two ways of being and how with all of that do we just be authentically ourselves so I don't know if that answered your question <laughs> but that's what I got for you. It does. And one of the things that I've been noticing a lot lately is how incredibly sturdy bodies are and how delicate psyches are. Oh, for sure. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Our psyches are so fragile. You know, they're so malleable, especially in our formative years. Our central nervous system, we're like the only species on the planet that the central nervous system, which affects the psyche, is not really fully formed until like our 20s sometime. And, um, and how much life experience happens to you and, and, and how that affects your psyche by the time you're 
quote unquote an, an adult at 18, which I would take umbrage with. But yeah, the psyche is, boy, it's so, so fragile and so malleable even in in our much later years. We are so swayed by fear and by, um, oh gosh, I don't even want to get into like all of the weeds with this, but <laughs> there's a lot here about the psyche and groupthink and manipulation and all of these things. And yeah, you're right, the body, it just keeps going. It just keeps moving in the direction of life. It just keeps processing and digesting, and yet our psyches it don't digest very well. It, it takes work. It takes attention. It takes mindfulness. Yeah, it's a great. It's a great observation. So, what's exciting you right now? What's exciting me? Well, it's August first. It's been a really hot summer. <laughs> And I'm kind of excited for fall to come because I haven't been able to really grow anything. It's just been so blazing hot. We normally have monsoon, what we call monsoons, where afternoon rain clouds roll in, they dump a, they dump water when we're lucky, they drop the temperature and they roll out. And that allows even, I'm not technically in the desert, but uh, it's almost a high desert at 7,000 feet where I am. And, and nothing's growing. My salvia bush, this year didn't flower because it's just everything is off this year. And so I'm looking forward to to slightly cooler temperatures because I'm hoping that I might get some cosmos flowers or some coreopsis. I am hoping that what plants did winter over are going to summer over this year. And, and I'm excited about a little bit of reprieve from the intensity of this sun. And I'm excited about this time. I used to be a summer lover, 100% tried and true, and now I'm really a winter lover. This time of going back in, of being with the internal world and that level of processing. And, um, and yeah, just I'm excited to see awakening happening at an accelerated pace on the planet and and I'm just really hopeful for where that is taking us all right yeah (laughs) I want to give you an opportunity now and again at the end of our time together to let people know how to get in touch with you yeah totally Um, best way to get in touch with me is to go to my website and just join my mailing list um my website is simply Join her mailing list. Good stuff. I'm on her mailing list. I like it. Yeah, but that's the best way. And then once you're on my mailing list, if you get an email from me and you want to reach out, you just hit reply and do that. Um, that's the easiest way. I'm not really a social media person. I don't really do that stuff. So my website, my newsletter. And then once we're connected, I have a great little free community that you can join and um, – I don't say it's little, actually. It's not a little community, but I have a great community that you can join and um, just be a part of this um, awakening of consciousness and awakening of your own innate sense of self, coming back to reclaiming the wholeness that you are. And Anna spells her name A-N-N-E, 
K-L-I-N-T, like Lint with a K before it. Anna Clint, A-N-N-E-L-I-N-T. And that should get you to whatever she's got going on there, which is a lot of really interesting things. So I want to know what a 3D past is. That's kind of like what I was talking about. We all are were born into a level of 3D consciousness, which is that uh, we... live in a a culture that values the material and and that's not just wealth or money or things like that, but rather places um, very heavy credence on what our five senses tell us. This world that we think is so solid is the 3D world, the world of matter. And yet we are spiritual beings that are not of this world and um, that's the paradox is that we believe everything because that's what we were taught. That was, we were taught that that was what was real. And that's just the nature of the human mind and, and kind of how it functions and also what culture was at the time of our birth. And, and ideas about consciousness are expanding and changing and growing at an exponential rate, which is super exciting. But, Still, we were all kind of born into this world that doesn't really understand the dynamics of quantum physics, even though quantum physics was around at the time of all of our births, everyone here who is listening, because it's over 100 years old, right? And um, well, we'll just assume, probably in your circle, Susan, you probably have some people who could be old enough to to predate quantum physics, but... um, because you're teaching everyone how to practice longevity. But um, let's just say for the sake of argument that that's what we were raised and and born into. And so in that 3D reality, there's cause and effect that that we have to deal with. There's, um, There's this idea that we have to work really, really, really hard for what we want. You know, um, we have to sacrifice, we have to, um, effort there's this efforting that comes in in this 3d world and yet here we are also as these magnificent spiritual creatures that are inhabiting this magnificent technology which is the human body which is inhabiting this even more magnificent technology which is the earth and the 3d plane doesn't see it that way it doesn't see the magic of these systems as being something other than a materiality if that makes sense and so they are the human body is sublime it's a sublime technology the earth is a sublime technology and and i think that the earth is sentient and and that there's so much more than we can understand based on the sensory perceptions that we isn't, isn't isn't being sentient the opposite of being technology? Hmm. That brings up questions. I mean, I AI, don't think it? of my body as technology. It makes me very uncomfortable to hear that. And I'm kind I of thinking, understand. so what technological pieces do I have in me? And I'm like going through and going, well, actually mm-hmm. none. 
Like, no, it's all just cells. No technology here at all. Chemistry, yeah, but technology, no. But maybe my idea of what this technology is somewhat limited by technology. I don't know. Yeah, I see it not as technology that we would think of our cell phone or our computer, but as a system that functions, that's, you know, perfectly, sublimely designed to function optimally. And, and again, um, sublime and technology can't go in the same sentence. Uh, oh, but can they? <laughs> I just put them together. <laughs> I know, but, but, they, but then one of them has to be meaningless. Hmm. I just, you know, uh, uh, to me, viewing the body as a machine has gotten us into a very difficult place. I agree. No, and that's that's. And I so, when agree. we say the body is technology, that means it's a machine. Mm, I don't mean it that way. I mean that I mean it in the way that it is that a technology is designed. Um, and and I believe that our our bodies were beautifully designed. And, oh, okay. and I guess that's, that's where we differ. I do not think that there's any intelligent design at all. Hmm. Well, I don't see that. But to me, evolution like is not about getting better. Evolution is merely about surviving. We are not I, the yeah. crown of creation. I agree. All of, it, all of life is not to create human beings as the ultimate thing, that we are the pinnacle of evolution. No, evolution simply means that we are able to adapt to changing circumstances. Right. And that those organisms which adapt best to the changing circumstances are the ones that are going to live and thrive, not because they are better, but because they are more adaptable. Right. And and I think that one of the things that freaks us all out about technology is that it's so linear. Mm. That that I can't have a sublime technology because technology by definition is not sublime. And so what part- Part of what it is. Yes, you can say those words together, but I I don't think you mean technology. I think you're kind of, I don't know. (laughs) I, I, I would like it if we could get to the word that you're actually trying to use, which is that you think, I believe, tell me if I'm wrong, that the um, body is... Well designed, like a smartphone. That's a crass way of putting it. Yes, and I can see how that well, how my use of words would. Right, and and I guess that I'm using technology in a non non in an unusual kind of a way that is um, that goes so much beyond how we're thinking of technology and and it is a loaded word these days when you know as as we see how we have become uh enmeshed in ways with technology and and how we're all standing at the brink of something that we can't even comprehend which is ai and that whole technology and so i can see like how that choice of words is 
problematic, and I, 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 I'm, I'm struggling right now to think of right. what the is definition the of te- I mean. technology is machinery and equipment developed from the application of scientific knowledge. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. And my body is not machinery or equipment. Oh. No, of course not. That's why I'm saying it's not technology. Yeah. So you always get me on my language every single time. <laughs> every that, single you time. know, that's one of the gifts of the autistic brain. It is. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah, you know, they say, oh, autistic people are so socially inept, they don't get it. But really what it is is that we only get what you're saying. We don't get what you right. intend. Right, right. And that's really helpful. We actually respond. And so, in fact, we're more adaptable and, we're pro- you know, we're probably the next step in evolution, actually, right? because of the adaptability, which doesn't um, take anything for granted. Right, right. Exactly. So every word exactly. everyone says to me, I hear that word. Right. Not not right. the word that they're pretending to say, that they're thinking about, that they mean to say, that everybody would understand. Like I had a long discussion last night with somebody who insisted that hypericum was good for depression. Right. And you said? And I said, depression doesn't exist. Nothing can be good for it. Hmm. I think you mean it's good for people who have depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The precision. The true the, Yes. It's not what precision. It's, uh, you know, it's that I, I find that a lot of ordinary human conversation it, it leads to bad misunderstandings because people are always being asked to guess what the other person means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and by precision, I mean precis- pre- precision of language to, conf- you know, to confer meaning. Um, using just that that's a perfect example. It's not, it's not depression that needs the St. John's sort. It's the person who feels depressed. Yeah, St. John's, yes. we'll should call it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you do you find that your work has changed over the past, say, twenty five years? Well, yes, I wasn't doing this work twenty five years ago, except in um, very, very, very informal, unconventional ways that I would not even have recognized at the time. But even just in, you know, since COVID, I would say the work has. In some on some levels, the work hasn't changed at all, and yet in other ways, um, the my awareness of what the work actually makes possible has completely expanded in in really beautiful ways over the last handful of years. Absolutely. Mm. I I really feel that in you this this beautiful. Um, opening up and expanding into your space. That's self-reclamation. Yeah. 
that's self-reclamation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> right? Understanding, seeing, knowing, being with, feeling into having an experience and then owning that and then and then being open to that path of uh, of evolution, whatever that is, you know, which is not necessarily a path of expansion and bright, shiny, happy, happy, joy, joy, but but rather this path of uh, the soul's journey, I suppose, which is sometimes windy and circuitous and painful and joyful and blissful and sometimes boring. <laughs> so <laughs> it's all of those. I don't know as I've ever found it boring. <laughs> I always say my exciting life. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I grow weary of some aspects of it. Maybe maybe boring is not quite the word. Maybe I wish it was boring. <laughs> on me, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Exactly. There's a bit of world weariness there. Well, yeah. I am not weary of you and could talk to you all night long, but they won't let us do that. So exactly. I'm going to ask you, what do you want to leave in the hearts and the minds of everyone who is listening to you on the Clint, A-N-N-E-K-L-I-N-T. You can find her in all the usual places. And what you want to leave with us is? The path to self-reclamation, to claiming your whole self, your soul self, is a path of opening the heart and living from the heart and relating to yourself and to the world around you through the heart. And I will not call that a technology, but we will just say that it is a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful aspect of the human experience. And, um, and it's what we're all here to do is to embrace that, the way of the heart. So thanks, Susan. That is so true. And I um, talked to a past apprentice last night who um, lost a client to a tragic car accident in which a um, car veered across the divider and struck um, the car that was being driven by her client's husband. Mm. He was the only, only survivor of the accident. And I told her that it was important to tell him that the heart is a diamond. And when we talk about having a broken heart, what we're yeah. actually experiencing is a peace being cleaved off of our heart so that we can shine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Difficult as it is to lose a wife, not born child. And that one one second, one second everything's fine, and the next second it's not. And that's that's why we need to keep reclaiming ourselves. It doesn't just happen and it's all done. It's an ongoing process. I am so thankful there are people like you here. And thank you for helping to reweave the healing cloak of the ancients. And Sarah Ellen, my gratitude always for helping me to restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Green blessings and good night, everybody. Bye-bye.